0: In today's episode, we speak to Professor Schneider-Mayerson, Assistant Professor at UNS College, about his article, Some Islands Will Rise, Singapore in the Anthropocene, which was the subject of our latest podcast. His latest research include climate change fiction, peak oil, apocalyptic environmentalism and libertarian political culture, and affect, in a book, Fueling Culture, Energy, History, Politics. He is currently engaged in research projects on climate change fiction, empirical ecocriticism, ecotopianism reproduction in the time of climate change, and the environmental dimensions of life in Singapore. Thank you, Professor, for joining us. Um, before we begin, would you mind sharing with us your research interests and what they involve or entail?
1: Sure. So my research is generally around the cultural dimensions of climate change, both the problem of climate change and the response to it. Um, So this takes a a variety of forms, looking at um, social responses, um, cultural responses through things like literature, um, art, and film. And generally, sort of the reason that I focus on On culture is that we tend to think of climate change as a problem of science or a problem of policy and of course we require science to understand climate change and other environmental issues and policy plays a pretty important role in responding to it but ultimately uh, I view uh, climate change and other environmental issues as a problem of values Um, and so values is often expressed through culture and often can be um, transformed through culture.
0: Well, I really deeply enjoyed your article, and uh, but I really found the title of your article, Some Islands Will Rise, um, somewhat puzzling. Um, so, so just to clarify, are you cynical about Singapore's insularity and irresponsibility, or others' sink? Or are you conveying your optimism about the stability delivered by Singapore's technocratic eco-authoritarianism?
1: Yeah, I think it's a deliberately ambiguous title. Um, in some ways, it's a title that... Um Identifies Singapore as an exceptional place at this moment in time. When we think of small island states uh, in the 21st century, we tend to think of them as drowning and sinking, and of course, that will be the fate of most island nations. Of course, uh, in the in AOSIS, the Association of Small Island States. Um, you know, the rest are places like uh, the Maldives, Tuvalu, places that we will see go underwater soon. Um, Singapore, I think, uh, will have a much longer lifespan, um, in part because of its wealth and in part because of its foresight. Singapore has been planning for sea level rise for some decades now, and it has the um, the wealth and the uh, technological capacity to um, to build seawalls, to have gradated, gradated uh, concrete embankments. So it is sort of some islands will rise, is acknowledging that not all islands will sink, but is often also drawing a, a contrast between Singapore and those countries. Um, also, as I suggest in the conclusion, you know, the idea of islands, um, islands obviously are, are geographical um, uh, items, but it's pretty clear that um, no country is an island, right? And this this is true whether we think of uh, greenhouse gases, right, which which sort of contribute to the uh, you know global commons and have influences not just here but around the world and and uh, for for not just decades but some, sometimes centuries, um, as well as the consequences of environmental issues, right? These are like the haze that floats over Singapore, um, you know, almost every year now. Um, climate change is not going to respect uh, the boundaries of politics.
0: It seems to me that there is a tension or an uneasiness inherent in Singapore's development, which is facilitated by migrant labourers on temporary work visas. These are the same migrant labourers, usually of Southeast and South Asian nationalities, whose kin and fellow nationals are especially vulnerable to the worst effects of climate change. Yet despite their significant contributions to Singapore's economy, and the latter's continued reliance on cheap, expendable, transient workforce, Singapore is not doing enough in the area of mitigating climate change. Nor is it really sharing its wealth, infrastructure and technological capacities with those vulnerable communities? Is this an issue that you raise? Do you think Singapore has a responsibility to those um, as far as climate change is concerned?
1: I do. Um, And I think this is uh, not not true, not just for Singapore, but for all countries that bear responsibility for the climate change that we're suffering from now um, and have the capacity to take action. In one way or another. Whether they or anyone else um, bears more responsibility for the consumption of fossil fuels that occurred before climate change was widely understood and accepted in the, the 1980s is an open question. But for 30 years, the science has been pretty clear. Um, the fact that almost all states and all people have continued with an incredibly reckless petrocapitalism doesn't mean that all should be forgiven. The fact, that, the fact is that typhoons, wildfires, and sea level rise that we're seeing now is the result of that consumption. Um, and scholars are beginning to calculate what the responsibility should or could be from a nation-state perspective. There's a great article that came out earlier this year that was actually calculating um, the historical responsibility for greenhouse gases— And translating that into the number of climate refugees that different states should accept. Singapore wasn't actually in that article because it's not one of the top 20 emitters. Um, So I do think Singapore has a responsibility. I think every state has a responsibility that has a history of contributing to the problem. And so the immediate um, answers have to be, the first is to decarbonize immediately. Um, So as as the saying goes, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing to do is to stop digging. Um, so we have to stop digging. And obviously, this will not be easy. But in a very real sense, the future of humanity um, is dependent upon it. And as I note in my article, there's much that Singapore could do. You know, Singapore tends to have this sort of motto of small island state, can't do much, you know, just humble, you know, right on the edge of, of crisis constantly because of land scarcity. But of course, Singapore is a very wealthy nation. It's got two of the largest uh, 11 sovereign wealth funds in the world. And so what it could do potentially, if it was interested, if this was a priority, if this was sort of a core value, is to um, use that funding to uh, encourage a transition to uh, renewable energy, for example. So, you know, that's the first step. And the second one is obviously to recognize that no country is really an island. Uh, in the Anthropocene in the 21st century. And so, you know, Singapore is planning to have millions more citizens by 2030. It made this clear in its last uh, population paper. And so there's no reason why it couldn't, um, you know, accept... 50,000, 100,000 climate refugees from places that are, you know, um, the most vulnerable. And that includes places like uh, the Philippines, which is incredibly vulnerable to typhoons. Indonesia, which is very vulnerable to sea level rise. So I do think Singapore has a responsibility. Uh, Whether it or uh, any other country will fully accept that responsibility remains to be seen.
0: You also describe in the exhibition The Future of Us as an expression and extension of um its presence sprinkled with a sleek antiseptic utopianism. And you mentioned more green veneer and open space while migrant workers and the port's container terminals were noticeably absent. Um so what do you think like this this grand aspiration represents and, and what is underlying values and commitments? It's a great
1: question. Um it's probably beyond my expertise. Uh um, to speak to, you know, Singapore's underlying values. And, of course, every country, you know, most notably my own, the United States, has a uh, conflict sometimes between its stated values and what it actually practices. And, of course, um, as some scientists have, have said, the, you know, the atmosphere doesn't care about our, uh, our rhetoric. It cares about what we do. Um, you know, what I can speak to and what I do think is important to consider is the values that will become most important in the decades to come. Um, and, you know, I think it, it is important to pay attention to, to values. We tend to have values, uh, most countries do, that have developed over this uh, sort of last couple centuries where we've really become decoupled from nature um, and we've really accepted this idea that humans can do whatever we want and we can potentially fix it uh, later on, you know, move fast and break nature, you may call it. Um, I think those values are going to have to change, and I think countries that are um, able and willing to recognise that we live in a dramatically different time now um, and potentially shift its values towards things like humility, uh, flexibility, um, justice, sort of uh, acknowledging our constant entanglement with the non-human world. I think those are countries that are going to succeed. A common challenge to liberal
0: democracies by authoritarian regimes like China um, is that democracies are ineffectual and held captive by myopic interests. And perhaps in some areas of climate action, Singapore and to some extent China have succeeded where America has failed. Um, yet at the same time, you know, authoritarians like China um, has mega projects in environmental management. They have also had mega failures as well. You know, um, The recently unveiled um, South-North Water Transfer Project is said to be one. Um, the world-famous Three Gorges Dam is also exceedingly devastating to the local ecology. So would you say that authoritarian administrations are generally speaking you know, more equipped,
1: more well-equipped to deal with environmental issues? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's one that a lot of folks don't want to consider. And so in some ways, my article is trying to ask that question. Um, and again, if this goes back to the question of, of values, right? The idea of like the sort of liberal values that have become dominant, at least in the West, Um, are maybe things that should be challenged. And you're right that there are sort of data points. You know, China and the United States now are certainly two countries moving in opposite directions in some ways when it comes to environmental management. Making a general statement is difficult because, of course, most uh, quote-unquote authoritarian countries now are not doing quite very well. You know, the United States is moving in that direction. Brazil, with its recent election, uh, is not exactly a a great example. Um, However, I think it's It's possible that we're moving into a period where um, emergency response, uh, where triage, and where making hard but potentially unpopular decisions will become the order of the day. Uh, And it's also true that authoritarian countries might have the potential to do that a little easier than democracies, which are, of course, um, hampered by various levels of of decision-making and by conflicting interests. It's difficult to imagine, for example, the United States moving quickly towards decarbonization when, you know, a good percentage of its population is is strongly opposed to it. So it's not an argument that I'm comfortable with, um, but I think it's inevitable that climate change will force us to challenge some of our deeply held beliefs, beliefs that were developed and enculturated during this period of freewheeling petrocapitalism. And so the question is, should we hold on to those beliefs or should we adjust them, um, given the scale of the destruction to come? I think it's a. I think it's a fascinating question, and I think in some ways Singapore is in an ideal place to answer it, given its sort of uh, you know location uh, between these two data points, the United States and China.
0: So um, let's just shift gears for a moment and sure. understand that you also recently published a book titled "Peak Oil: Apocalyptic Environmentalism and Libertarian Political Culture." So would you mind sharing with us what the book is about and how peak
1: oil is related to libertarianism? Mm-hmm. So. Peak Oil uh, is a book that focuses on uh, the peak oil movement or peak oil subculture, um, which developed in the, largely in the United States around 2005 to 2011. This was a period in which um, gas prices were rising quickly, um, and there were a lot of concerns of uh, energy depletion. The idea that we would soon run out of fossil fuels and it would sort of cause this massive collapse or crisis of civilization. Uh, this is before things like fracking and, and tar sands came online, which really obviated the, the these concerns. Um, so it's a study of a, an, a largely American subculture of mostly leftists who actually hoped that um, sort of energy depletion would lead to the end of the world as we know it. And would sort of usher in a, a better uh, world. Um So I look at this as a group that actually sort of thought that they were leftists, um, that sort of identified as leftists, but when they kind of imagined um, what would come after the end of the world, they did so in a very individualistic way. Um, So they tended, instead of a social movement coming together, you know, seeing themselves as a political force and taking action, um, they tended to think individualistically, sort of plan for the end of the world, uh, you know, do canning. Some of them even bought arms, things like this. So I I view them partially as a way of marking the way that that um, uh, conservatism, libertarianism, neoliberalism, has, had become such a powerful force in American political culture um, that even folks who identified as leftists actually viewed um, social problems in a very libertarian way. Um, and so the peak L movement has sort of passed, but in a lot of ways, you know, what, what this group was experiencing was relevant to the focus on climate change, which is obviously a lot more um, important and topical now. So the idea of sort of the social marginalization of people that take uh, environmental crisis seriously, um, the idea of you know facing environmental problems individually or collectively, these are all issues that have sort of moved to the the forefront of not just uh, you know fields like environmental studies, but of of uh, academia and public life in general. That's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you, Professor,
0: for your time and for your many invaluable insights. Um, would you like to
1: share with us a few parting words? I think the only uh, parting words I would have is that, um, you know, focusing on climate change can be a difficult subject and one that a lot of people don't want to do. I'm sure that a lot of folks maybe saw the description of this podcast episode and thought, oh, I don't really want to think about climate change right now. And let's, you know, let's listen to something else. Let's go to Spotify. Um, But I think in some ways climate change um, offers us an opportunity, right? Every crisis is also an opportunity. And so it's an opportunity to recognize that we are actively shaping the world we live in already. We've been doing so for decades and centuries in ways that perhaps we were not fully aware of. Um, and so the future is literally at our hands. The decisions that we make today, individually, collectively, politically, you know, are shaping the world that will come for decades, centuries, even millennia. So it's an opportunity. And I think those who, you know, accept the opportunity and decide to focus on it um, will be the ones to shape the future. If you'd like to learn more about ecocriticism, climate
0: justice, and the environmental humanities, check out the link in the description below, which will bring you to Professor Schneider-Madison's academia page. If you enjoy our work, subscribe. Till next week. Goodbye. After Hours is brought to you by the US Society for Academic Research. This episode is hosted and written by Alston Ng, Class of 2021, and edited by myself, Raina Ng, from Class of 2022. The music is specially composed by Nicole Nazareth from Class of 2022.